Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. The Advertising Show is being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted big radio midgets production. Uh, right around Christmas in uh, 2010, we had Rachel Botsman on the show. She had then written a new book. The book is all about the power of collaboration. In other words, getting together, putting the pieces together to make what we have a little bit stronger and a little bit better. It's a great interview. Hope you enjoy it here on The Advertising Show. The rise of collaborative consumption. This is an interesting thing. It says the big shift here. What's mine is yours charts how in the 20th century of hyperconsumption, we were defined by credit, advertising, and what we own, baby. And we showed it off. And how the 21st century of collaborative consumption will be defined by reputation, community, and what we can access. The book is uh, the, uh, the book is a groundbreaking original book that explores the rise of collaborative consumption, a cultural and economic force transforming business, consumerism, and the way we live. It sounds to me, Rachel, like we've got just, just got a whole bunch of people, not only in the United States, but all over the world, coming together to kind of make it a better place. That may be an oversimplified uh, uh, response, but what do you think about that? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely uh, got sort of a, a nice community aspect to it, but it's also got a it's actually a whole new breed of businesses and, and ways that we're actually thinking about consumerism and, and it, the way we express ourselves. So uh, you guys were talking about Netflix and the Kindle and the iPad. Uh, well, they're actually at the heart of what we're talking about. You know, people don't feel the need to own physical DVDs, they want the movie that they carry. So all of a sudden we're in this era of uh, wanting um, you know, the, the experiences or benefits of stuff versus the physical stuff itself. So Rachel, uh, I'm curious, what prompted the, the book? I understand that you were a consultant or continue to be a consultant to businesses around the world from both brand and social innovation strategy. You're also a former director for the William J. Clinton Foundation. Was it something along the lines of working with particular clients that motivated the book? Yeah, it was really a convergence of different factors. Um, I started to develop sort of a weird fascination with understanding how consumerism was constructed, you know, over the last 60 years. And to be honest, um, just got a bit tired as a brand consultant helping companies sell more stuff. Um, and at the same time, have always been really fascinated with the digital culture and had this hunch that uh, sort of the sharing and collaboration that we were starting to see, whether it was in politics or through the likes of YouTube and Flickr, was going to extend into other areas of our lives. So it was really those two sort of parts of my life coming together that the idea started to emerge. So for some groundwork, uh, give us a sense of just your definition of collaborative consumption, Rachel. So collaborative consumption, um, the definition is basically that technology, so everything from smartphones to social networks, is in fact taking us back to really old market behaviors. So these are things we were doing for hundreds, thousands of years, swapping, trading, renting, sharing, bartering, lending, but they're being reinvented in ways and on a scale that have never been possible before. So 
to make that real, it's everything from if you've used eBay, if you've used Zipcar or car sharing, if you use Netflix, if you've swapped something online, you are already a part of collaborative consumption. So it sounds like it's been something that is, as you stated, been around for a very long time. Why now? What what, what is different between uh, last century, this century, today, tomorrow? What? It's it's really it's um it really comes down to four reasons why we're sort of in the perfect storm and seeing you know a lot of these businesses started around ten years ago, but there's just been an explosion in new marketplaces in the last two years. It's really, one, because of technology. So um, we now live in an age where we can locate, you know, anything, anytime, anywhere from a small device in our hands. And that creates both the access and the social glue for us to trade peer-to-peer and to access things in different ways. Um, the second is we're seeing a massive resurgence in the belief in community, in both in the real world and the virtual world. So you can look at... You know, the rise of farmers markets to Facebook actually have quite a lot in common with each other um, because we're sort of moving out of this hyper-individualistic age and into the age of community. So I talk about how brand me is being replaced by brand we. Um, and then the last two is, is sort of uh, pressing, you know, environmental concerns and realizing that just more greener products isn't the answer. And then, of course... Um, the global recession, but it's not about making us frugal, but we're actually going through a value and a values revolution where we're starting to question what really makes us happy. And, you know, is it, is it time that we stop trying to keep up with the Joneses and, and actually took the time to get to know them? So it's those four things that are coming together to create this, this big shift that I think is going to be as big as the Industrial Revolution. Wow. You know, uh, you talk about uh, hyper-consumption as one of the key elements as to why collaborative consumption model has emerged over the past few years that helped trigger this uh, phenomenon. I want to zero in on that in particular. I think most people get what the concept hyper-consumerism means in essence, but you say that there's a power of persuasion at work here. Can you talk a little bit about that, Rachel? Yeah, um, so... Hyperconsumption is basically economy dependent on selling more stuff. And um, what we look at is basically over the last 60 years how we have developed a whole advertising and marketing and brand industry that is built around the power of persuasion. So essentially most companies exist on this, you know, keeping the consumer dissatisfied. So um, I think it's if you bought every iPod since one came out, you'd own 18 iPods. Because, you know, they're smaller, shinier, different colors. And so um, it's the power of persuasion is convincing you that you always need better, newer, shinier, smaller, bigger, um, that we've become so sophisticated in developing in, in the ad and marketing world. You know, and uh, I want to hit on the other points around hyper-consumerism, and I do know people, and I'm sure others do as well, that have more than one iPod or, or one of the latest technical uh technology uh, devices because the other one seems obsolete, although I doubt that it really is. You also talk about the buy now, pay later culture that we're all familiar with. I think we all know what that means. But let's talk a little bit or hear you talk a little bit, I should say, about law of life cycles as a force of for hyper consumerism. Yeah, so the law of life cycles um, is basically connected to obsolescence. So there's really two types of obsolescence that 
again, we invented. We invented after the Second World War because um, everyone started to have one of everything. So we either needed to have two or for that thing to break. So basically, companies started to work with planned obsolescence which is when something's actually built into the product to make it break within a, within a time frame. Or perceived obsolescence, which is all about, you know, they call it death dating in the design world. So it's all about making the style feel like it's gone out of date within two to three years, so you feel like you need to buy the new thing. Um, and that's, that's, essentially, um, that's essentially what we're talking about there. Well, you know, uh, I want to hold for the next segment and talk to you a little bit about uh, something you touch on in your book called the reemergence of the handmade and recycling uh, category, if you will. It's not it's not a fad. It's actually something that's resurging, and I'll save that for next segment. It's a good uh, good plan here at the advertising show. Rachel and Brad Forsyth, Rachel Botsman out of uh, Sydney, Australia. Rachel writes, consults, and speaks on the power of collaboration and sharing and how it can transform business. And the way we lived, and it comes with, uh, she comes with a lot of credentials as well. She received her BFA honors from uh, Oxford, undertook her postgraduate uh, studies at Harvard, has consulted to uh, businesses around the world on brand and social innovation strategy. <clears throat> and uh, as Brad was mentioning before, as a former director of the uh, William J. Clinton Foundation, she spearheaded major public uh, private partnerships with Nickelodeon, Rachel Ray, and the NBA, which rhymes, which is a wonderful thing. And uh, we're happy to have Rachel here on the Advertising Show today. Well, it does. It's, it's just nice. And it's, it, she'll probably be running for either a governor and or president next. We don't know that, but I'm just throwing that out there. With Ray and Brad at the Advertising Show, tell a friend to listen in and stay right here. We've got more to come. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America is asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's and back when Dinah Shore was singing about uh, driving the USA in your Chevrolet, we didn't think about things like we're thinking about today, and it's kind of good uh, that we're, uh, we are where we're at at this point in time in history that's a an exciting time i'm so happy the fact that people are saying the the uh the uh the recession is through it's it's, it's a good thing rachel botsman is our special guest uh out of sydney uh, she is the author of what's mine is yours the rise of collaborative consumption and rachel i found it very interesting you know we think this is a global uh, program we reach all the uh, corners of the world here uh, but we, we think of uh, community and a sense of community and coming together uh, specifically as I look at it here in the United States. Is that, uh, are things like that going on around the world that you see that really uh, support the, uh, uh, the rise of the collaborative consumption? Yeah, I mean, I actually, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a smorgasbord, British, uh, American, and Australian, so um, spent a lot of time in those three continents. And, and you start to see 
um, similar indicators of, of people, ret- a return to local, you know, a return to the appreciation of, you know, in, in the UK, there's a massive backlash going on ag- against uh, sort of the high street and how we lost the local greengrocer and the local baker and um, how you can't walk your kids to work anymore. And, uh, you know, the government's just come out with their vision of the, the big society, which is all about taking the dependency off big government and big corporations and getting people to work as local communities again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the United States, it, you know, we talked about farmers markets. I, I think it's pretty telling there's now um, over 1,903 more farmers markets than Walmarts in the United States. And uh, what the, um, most of them have actually formed in the last three years. So I think there's a sort of a turn in in values and an appreciation of sort of a slight backlash against is globalization and, and sort of small is, is the next big thing. Yeah, and as I mentioned as I closed out last segment from, uh, as you note in your book, Etsy to FreeCycle, this idea of handmade and recycling, it's not a fad. It's actually uh, an area resurging around the world. Share with us, Rachel, if you would, some of the new values of you've identified in your book that have come into play for this reevaluation and consumption habits. Yeah, I mean, all around us we're seeing this sort of yearning for um, simplicity and sort of human community-based marketplaces. Um, transparency, so we want to look the uh, person in the eye who's selling the good and finding out what it's all about. And also sort of an element of participation. You know, we, we don't just want to be passive consumers involved in sort of one-way transactions. We want to be active participants involved in relationships. Um, you mentioned Etsy, which is uh, you know, a craft marketplace for people selling everything from jewelry to bookcases. And what it does is it, it means that those craft people can trade directly with uh, peer-to-peer. And without the middlemen in between, it means that they actually have a viable business model. And, um, you know, Etsy last month, 300,000 new members joined, and they did over $30 million in business. So this isn't sort of a a small niche thing. You know, when when all the other retailers were actually suffering, people were turning to Etsy because they were saying, you know, let's support the local artisans. Let's actually get involved in very unique human marketplaces. Yeah, you've been quoted as saying, Rachel, that trust is the new black. Uh, Elaborate a little bit on that, if you would, please. Yeah, I mean, so many of these peer-to-peer marketplaces are are driven by trust or or reputation capital, as I call it. So if you think about eBay, you know, if I said to you 10 years ago, you're going to buy something. I bought something from Haunted Pirate the other day, you know, a slight kicker. You would say, Rachel, you know what, you're crazy. You're going to pay for that. You don't know who that person is. And yet 99% of all trades on eBay receive a positive rating. So what we're seeing is in the same way sort of, um, you know, our credit card history affected our behaviors in the old consumer model in terms of what we can access, our reputation capital is becoming this new kind of currency in peer-to-peer marketplaces. You know, Rachel, when you uh, when wrote the book, you had uh, obviously to do a lot of research and things like that. What were some of the most, uh, I guess, surprising things that, you, uh, uh, that came of the research behind the book? Um, it's a really good question. Um, so let's take the entrepreneurs first um, that were founding the companies. I was I was blown away by how many people were emerging, you know, from top business schools all around the world, saying, you know what, 
I don't want to go into a big corporation. I want to create a startup with a social purpose. And they're almost like the next generation of web entrepreneurs. So they're taking this really unique blend of, of technology and community and understanding that it's not just about the products and services they sell, it's about the communities that they create. So I think I was just blown away by um, the people that were consciously making the choice um, to, to start their own businesses with a social conscience. Um, and then... I guess on the user side, two things blew me away. One was, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way at all, because I actually wrote the first few chapters around consumerism, around the process of discovery I went through, is how ignorant we are about how much of this system was constructed. Um, and then the second thing is, is the range of people involved. So I think when you first talk to people about collaborative consumption, they, they sometimes assume that it's either very young people or it's, it's green hippies. And that wasn't the case. It was a complete range across age groups and, and people with very different motivations um, for getting involved. You know, I, for one, uh, have believed for a long time that consumerism is way beyond what it needs to be or should be, and that people in general buy too much stuff. And you elaborate a lot about this in your book. But, you know, on the other hand, I think anybody that understands the economics of, for example, America, 70% of our economy is driven by consumerism. And I'm sure that these numbers, although not exactly the same, are equally as significant around the world. What happens to our world economy if collaborative collaborative consumption becomes a reality and people start buying less and start, uh, you know, behaving more normal, if you will. <laughs> well, it just, I mean, I just want to take a step back, but I think what we've seen over the last two years is that the current consumer system, our current economy is a big Ponzi scheme, you know? So if one thing, it's like Django, right? You pull one stick out and the whole thing collapses. And I think people have realized that it leaves us incredibly vulnerable. You know, the answer isn't go shop more. I mean, you know, from George Bush after 9-11 to the, the messages we're hearing around Christmas, it, it's, we're in this vicious cycle and it's only going to be another, what, five, ten years that comes along that disrupts it again. So I think there's a growing realization that this thing that we've built actually doesn't work. It's not, it's not in for the, the long haul. Um, the flip side of that is, is, you know, if you look at any big economic transition, whether it's the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution, there's always winners and losers. And it takes us a little bit of time to figure out how things are monetized. But, you know, actually new entrepreneurs, new opportunities, new spaces are created. So, um, you know, just if you look at Netflix versus Blockbuster, Blockbuster's in the bin, Netflix is absolutely thriving. So it just takes people a bit of time um, to figure out how to monetize these things, but it's not saying the whole economy's going to collapse. It's actually saying there's new forms of creation of wealth out there. What's mine is yours is the new book, and it's called The Rise of Collaborative Consumption. The author we're talking to, Rachel Botsman out of Sydney, uh, this uh, weekend here at the Advertising Show. And we'll continue the conversation in just a moment with Ray and Brad. Ray Shillings and Brad Forsythe, so happy to be spending uh, the day after Christmas. We'd like some turkey and uh, some maybe some turkey soup and leftover mashed potatoes, if you don't mind. Uh, it's, it's good to be here with the, uh, the advertising show and happy to have you along as well. We're talking to uh, Rachel Botsman, the author of What's Mine is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption. You know, earlier we talked, Rachel, about 
the emerging uh, opportunity for this uh, this trend, which is absolutely fantastic. I love it. I love it. I love it. I think any entrepreneur really deep down inside has this at their heart and their core. They just haven't discovered how to, uh, you know, pull it off yet. But with, you know, basically with Web 2.0 concepts and crowdsourcing and social networking, it seems like maybe this uh, is something that is uh, fueling the expansion of this concept. Would you say that would be true? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think a, a lot of the businesses are sort of next generation Web 2.0. So, you know, the first the first generation was really us uh, figuring out how to connect and collaborate and share photos and share files and share knowledge. And, and now those behaviors are starting to move into other areas of our lives. So um, we're actually starting to look at collaboration and sharing across totally different segments. You know, it's funny you mentioned uh, before about uh, uh, hippies and such like that, you know, almost like that kind of a, uh, oh, hate Ashbury, or that's probably not a good example, but you know what I'm talking about, type of sharing the love, peace, and joy. You're talking to a bunch of old hippies. We are hippies. Indeed, we're just a lot older and a lot grayer. That's all, right? <laughs> Go ahead, Brad. Yeah, uh, you know, in your book, people don't know this, or maybe they do if they have a copy, but you open in the front cover there, right uh, over the flap there, you have a barter, swap, or pass along uh, uh, portion that's embedded in the page there, so you can write the person's name, location, and who you uh, loaned the book to. You also have that on the inside back cover, which I think is a novel idea, and it certainly speaks to the the whole concept of what you're uh, what you're conveying to the reader in the book, and the relationship between physical pro- uh, products as items viewed as individual ownerships, as you note in the book, is undergoing a huge change right now. And you know, I'm not just talking about intellectual property, which I think a lot of people think uh, when they think in terms of individual ownership. But for example, there's a debate as to whether CDs will be around in the near future and if we go to some other all digital type of approach. But I wanted to get your thoughts, Rachel, on how this idea of access is better than ownership came about. Yeah, I mean, you you hit on it that what we're starting to see, even if we don't consciously think about it, you know, when we are um, buying something off iTunes, is that tune mine, yours, or ours? You know, it's it's sort of a collective repository of of music that's very different from people owning their own music collection on on their shelves. So um, so much of of collaborative consumption is actually tied to a culture of, of dematerialization. So it's people saying, you know what, I actually don't need to own music. I want to access it on the on the go, um, all the way through to car sharing, where people are saying, you know what, the, the, the idea that the average car sits idle for 23 hours of the day, yet we spend $8,000 a year to run one car, the economics of that don't make sense. So I think we're, we're growing up with a whole generation that has... You know, first of all, a very different relationship to how they think about fulfilling their wants and needs, which is which is digital. Secondly, they have a whole different way of expressing themselves through virtual means so that physical brands are less important. And thirdly, they're actually questioning the economics of things that have what I call high idling capacity. Um, so, you know, the car that sits idle for 23 hours a day doesn't actually make sense. Isn't it better just to pay for it um, on demand? You know, so many times a, a brand's success is based on the fact that they're not uh, a large national or global brand. The fact that a lot of people want to 
deal with some unique uh, product or some unique company that is right in their own community. So if you're a big brand name, how do you build smallness or locality into your brand? Yeah, I mean, it's a question I, I work with, you know, I work with startups to big brands, and it's a question I'm getting asked over and over. How do we bring smallness into our bigness? How do we bring localness into a global brand? And and often the question is actually, you know, sub-brands and local franchises, talking sort of uh, brand technical terms, um, or also to, to, to make, to build community in. So I think a really great example is actually Nike. Um, you know, Nike spending, what, 55% less than it did on traditional advertising than 10 years ago. And they're investing in communities like Nike Plus, where millions of runners all around the world share tips, share running advice, and arrange to meet up in the real world. So the beautiful thing about social networks is that people can find their unique local circle. They can find their own community. And that's something that big brands need to build in. They, they need to, even if they can't be a local brand, they've got to enable people to be able to form their own trust circles, their own, their own customized communities. You know, it's an interesting uh, concept along the lines of what you were just speaking of, but a, a little different, and that is uh, Ray and I have talked to, about beer and various uh, uh, craft beers. That's what we tend to drink. And mm-hmm. Pub, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon, I don't know if you're familiar with that product, but PBR was a product that was down to about a million barrels a year, and it was losing market share uh, uh, year after year. And they discovered that uh, a lot of uh, – uh, young kids were drinking that beer in Portland, Seattle area, and they went to study this, and they discovered that the young people were drinking the beer because it was an anti-brand. It was a brand that was not advertised, and it was also uh, a brand that was very reasonably priced. So before they Cheap. almost made, the, <laughs> yeah, well, before they almost made the mistake at home office and decided to advertise the brand to that particular demographic, they realized that that would backfire. So they did what, in effect, was grassroots marketing and got in to support some of the uh, various sporting events and things that these young people were doing. And since then, the brand has grown, but they still have not done any advertising. So I think it. Uh, lends itself along the lines in a different way to what you were just talking about, Rachel. Uh, as we wrap up today's interview, I'm I'm wanting you to have the opportunity for those that may be listening that have a role in bringing a large company into a more community-based organization. Any advice that you can give them, other than of course going out and buying, buying the book, a wonderfully yeah. written book, "What's Mine Is Yours." Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think you actually just hit on something with the. PBR, which I drank in college, um, you know, you're actually seeing the brand of no brand. So things that feel like, you know, Craigslist is one of the seventh most popular brands in the world ahead of Oprah. So um, there's actually, a, you know, a growing popularity of, of things that feel like they're stripped of brand that people can la- layer on their own personal layer. So that would be my first advice is how can you actually let people feel like they own their brand and, and can customize it themselves. The second is, um, you know, Etsy, I would, any big brand, I would tell them to look at Etsy. They don't do any traditional advertising. Um, it's all built through word of mouth. But what they, what they realize is, you know, you can't choose the way evangelists choose to evangelize. So you have to let go if you're going to go that route. Um, so Etsy has, you know, thousands of blogs that have been created by people love, who love Etsy, but they also have Regretsy which 
is people who have formed <laughs> blogs of things that they regret buying on Etsy. So, um, you know, I think that's one of the hardest things wearing my brand hat is, is you actually have to say, you know, if we're going to go with a really organic grassroots campaign, it's only going to work if people feel like they have true freedom and control versus it feeling like a big tri- brand trying to get free advertising. The uh, book is called uh, What's Mine is Yours, The Rise of Collaborative Consumption. You'll find it at Amazon.com, at Borders, Barnes & Noble, and, uh, of course, you can also go to CollaborativeConsumption.com and buy it there, too. Rachel, great book, and uh, perfect timing as well. We uh, uh, think it's a great opportunity to wrap up the year with you, and and, uh, hopefully a few folks will pick this book up and get into uh, 2011 in a good state of mind. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. On the Advertising Show, Ray Shillings, Brad Forsyth. Want more? We've got another segment coming your way here in just a moment. Stay right here. Thanks again for listening to the Advertising Show, another Encore Show. Tell us what you think of these Encore Shows, and uh, we certainly hope you're enjoying them as much as we are hearing them. Once again, the advertising show has a decade of uh, great guests as it relates to advertising and marketing, and these are the heavy hitters of our industry, so uh, we thank you for listening for that. Advertising show is powered by Shipple.com, a a platform called Tendency. Gives us the ability to make this one killer website from a marketing standpoint. Check it out. It's schipul.com. Advertising show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The Advertising Show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we will talk to you again real soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications, and it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.